Um, so I have, some, I have some things to unpack because that, that didn't get any amens right off the bat. Um, holiness has a lot of negative connotations in, in the church today. Unfortunately, it wasn't always that way. Um, for most people, the two words beauty and holiness don't go together. Uh, holiness might go together with failure or with guilt or with struggle or with bondage or with legalism in a lot of minds. But the words beauty and holiness going together, um, not so much of a fit, even though the Scripture commands us in Psalm 96 verse 9, if you want to look that up later, that we are to worship the Lord in the what? In the beauty of holiness. So from God's perspective, holiness is a beautiful thing. Would you agree with that? I want to explore that a little bit because I don't think that that is um, commonly understood or grasped or loved or embraced in the church. So, um, holiness tends to have a bitter taste. You know, in, in our home, when our children were small, um, we had one of our children... I, I can't confirm or deny that they're sitting in the third row here, but um, one of our children had a little issue when they were young with just overreaction and kind of whining and fussing. And what I mean is, if they bumped their leg, they would be put out for a long time. Oh, 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 oh. We say, it's, it's okay, it's really, it's not, it's not that bad, you're not bleeding, nothing. Like, oh, oh, oh. So we thought, how can we help them to get over the fussing? And so we had this idea, we heard it from somebody else, we'll make this little drink, and we called it no fuss medicine. And it was mostly vinegar, and it was a little pepper, and it was a little honey, it was this concoction. And we said, oh, baby, you're hurting so much. Here, take some of this no-fuss medicine, and it will, it will really help you to feel better. Do you need some no-fuss medicine? Oh, oh, oh. We give them a drink of the no-fuss medicine, and we're like, how's that? Is that better for the fussing? <laughs> Next time, when there was that kind of an overreaction, oh, 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 baby, do you need some no-fuss medicine? I'm good. <laughs> Holiness in the church has become like no fuss medicine, I think. Like, brother, do you want to learn more about holiness and embrace that more in your life? No, I'm good. I'm good. I, I hope in this message to um, persuade you that holiness is truly beautiful and it is a beautiful pursuit of life for believers. I have a, um, a confession to make before the congregation. Um, I hang out with dead people a lot. And dead people speak to me. And they have actually changed my whole life. Um, and I, I want to quote to you something that a dead person said to me. <laughs> I'm a little facetious there, but I'm speaking truly because that's the truth. 
what I have found in my life and in my spiritual life is that there are dead people that when I read their words, their take on God and see their life, I get on my knees and I go, God, do I know you? God, do I have a fire and a passion for you? God, is my life really devoted to you? And I can tell you that there's dead people that are the best friends that I have in life because honestly, there's some dead people that have more fire with God than any live people that I know. And um, here's one of them that has helped me greatly. Um, his name is Jonathan Edwards, and he was one of the leaders of the First Great Awakening in America. <laughs> He's caricatured today as being this fire and brimstone, holiness type of preacher in the worst sense of the word. But he was obsessed with God. And the fire of his devotion and passion and focus on Jesus and his love for the Lord puts me to shame but stirs me up to want more. I love people that convict me. I love people whose passion and fire for the Lord make me feel like I'm an infant in the things of God. I love them. And so I, I love this dead guy because being dead, like the Bible says in Hebrews, he still speaks. Here's what Jonathan Edwards said, and I want to try to persuade you of this through the scripture that we're going to go through. He said, holiness is a most beautiful, lovely thing. Men are apt to drink in strange notions of holiness from their childhood. How many can raise your hand? As if it were a melancholy, morose, sour, and unpleasant thing. But there is nothing in it but what is sweet and ravishingly lovely. It is the highest beauty, vastly above all other beauties, because it is divine beauty. So, guys, let me just help a brother out here. I know from experience and from talking to guys, we sometimes have a hard time connecting this word beauty with our relationship with God. And we have a hard time connecting the idea of us being a bride with our relationship with God. So maybe I can help you out here. Beauty is not a feminine thing, okay? It's not just a feminine, oh, that's a beautiful dress, a beautiful flower. And you got, dude, that's not me. I, I don't relate to God like that in beautiful. Listen, guys, we use beauty as well. I learned this from a three-year-old at my house on the 4th of July uh, a few years ago. We were shooting off fireworks like we always do because all my boys are pyromaniacs and um, love to shoot off fireworks. And so we sit out there and inhale smoke and watch things and listen to things that hurt our ears. So my guys were out there. This little fellow was out there. He had his sparklers, you know. He couldn't shoot off the mortars, the bottle rockets, and stuff like that. But he's out on our back porch, and he's just sitting there mesmerized looking at everything going on. And uh, one of my guys took a whole pack of firecrackers. You ever do that? You light the whole pack at one time, throw it out there, and in the dark of night, it's just, there's, there's noise, and there's flashing, and there's fire everywhere, and that little fellow is looking at the screen, and he goes, that was beautiful. <laughs> I said, now, you would have never heard a girl say that, but to that boy, 
That was beautiful. Beautiful is not feminine. It means that something is excellent and admirable, and you just want to stare at it because it's so amazing and excellent. That's what beauty is about. It's not gender-related. So I've known guys that had car collections in their garage, retirees. They made extra lifts in their garage so they could get three and four cars in there. And they've got $200,000 worth of cars in their garage. And I say to them, well, what do you do with them? And they're like, isn't that beautiful? They, they, they stroke it. Look at the lines of that. They open up the hood. They look inside. And look, look at the headers on that thing. Isn't that beautiful? They're, they're stroking. Like, well, but what do you do with the cars that you have? $200,000 worth of cars in your garage. Dude, I, I look at them. And when other people come over, I show them. And I go, isn't that beautiful? And the guys are out there going, dude, that's a beautiful car. You want to hear it run? That's beautiful. See, we, we have our own concept of beauty, but we relate it too much in a feminine way with God. Here's the idea of beauty in your relationship with God. He's so excellent. He's so admirable. You can't stop looking at Him. Everything about Him is magnificent and perfect. His perfection. All of that is part of the beauty of what holiness is. Um, so Psalm 45. I'll give you guys another example. Steph Curry's running down the court. He's coming around the edge. There's two guys on him like that. He jumps up for a three-pointer. Boom. That was beautiful. Football. Pass. Guy's in the corner of the end zone. Drags both toes. Catches the ball. That was a beautiful catch. Guys, tell me the truth. How many of you after a game have turned on and watched that play over and over again? H have you? Why? Because that was beautiful. It's admirable. It's excellent. There's perfection in it. But obviously, all human beauty is relative to the absolute perfection of God. So don't get um, hung up, guys, on the word beauty. You use it too. But for God, it just means his perfections are astounding and make you want to drop your jaw and stare. I love that verse in... Um, Thessalonians, where Paul talks about how when Jesus Christ comes back again, all of his saints will marvel. We think we've known him, but when he comes back in his glory, we're going to drop our jaw and go, oh my goodness, you were so much greater than I ever knew. We're going to marvel. It's his beauty. It's his perfection. And it draws us and draws our attention to him. And let me just say one more thing, guys. I'm trying to help you out. I have guys tell me several times, dude, I cannot relate this whole imagery of me being a bride. Like, I cannot see myself in a dress. Okay, let me help you. Forget the dress. It's a metaphor because a husband and wife is the closest, most intense, most intimate, most passionate 
strongest bond of covenant that we have in earthly relationships. So the Lord uses that to tell us what relationship with him is like. So forget the dress. Take the dress off. Throw it out of your head. We're not talking about that. This is a picture of what relationship with God is like. Because in this Psalm 45, it's a marriage of a king and his bride. And it reveals the beauty of holiness. Okay. Chapter 45, Psalm, verse 1. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. So, so let me pause for just a minute here. I know I interrupt myself a lot, but let me just pause for a minute. This psalm is about the marriage of a king with a queen, obviously. It's going to be his wife. And the splendor and the majesty of that. It starts out describing the king, his qualities, his excellencies, his beauty to admire. And then it goes to the bride, which is his wife. This is a messianic psalm, okay? What does that mean? That means that though it was written about some earthly uh, wedding that we don't really know the details of, there's another layer behind that where it's actually referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that this is a messianic psalm? Because the Holy Spirit in Hebrews chapter 1 quotes several of these verses and says it's talking about the Son of God in this psalm. This is a picture not only of an earthly marriage of a king, it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his people, his bride. Okay, So we know that. So let's follow on in there. Verse 2. You're fairer than the sons of men. Um, Hebrew the here is pretty much stronger. So if you just follow me in the details a little bit here. The Hebrew says this. You are beautiful. More beautiful. Like that twice. Than all of the sons of men. In the Hebrew language, when you say something more than one time back to back, what are you doing? You're emphasizing it. Dude, he's not just beautiful, he's beautiful, beautiful. He's amazingly beautiful. Okay, get the dress out of your head. We're not talking about that. He's perfect. He's, he's admirable. Everything about him makes you want to drop your jaw and go, wow, that's so amazing. He's beautiful. Um, grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. These verses are, again, in Hebrews chapter 1, some of these verses. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty, ride on victoriously. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The people fall under you. He's talking about how mighty he is in battle and how dominant he is. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. And then verse 6, this is where it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And your scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Notice that. A scepter of uprightness, or could translate righteousness or justice, a scepter of uprightness and justice and righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. That's how he rules. 
right? He rules in righteousness. Has the Lord ever done anything that's unjust? Will anybody be able to stand before the Lord on the judgment day and said, you did me wrong? Like, that wasn't right. Well, anybody? I, I know we have these things of things that we question in our life, and we think that when we stand before him, we're going to, I've got a question for God, and my response is always, I doubt it. I doubt it. When you see him as he is, you know. He is completely without blame. Let God be true and every man be what? A liar. Yeah. He's completely righteous. And verse 7, this is part of the beauty. So verse 2, you're beautiful, beautiful, Lord Jesus. You are perfect. You are amazing and admirable in all your ways. What's one of the ways that he is amazing and admirable? The scepter of his kingdom is righteousness, uprightness. And number, uh, verse 7, you have loved righteousness and hated iniquity, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows, the oil of joy. So notice in verse 7, what is one of the qualities of his beauty? He loves what? He loves what? He loves righteousness. And he hates what? He hates wickedness. So there's something passionate about the beauty of the Lord when it comes to righteousness and wickedness. Would you agree? He doesn't just tolerate wickedness. He doesn't just say righteousness is pretty good. He loves one and he hates the other. There's some passion inside of him about it. It's part of his excellence. Holiness for God is what he is at his essence. That's why when you, you, you get into the heavenly realm and you have the beings, what, what are the worship leaders like, by the way, in heaven? Great singers, styling, moving. No, they're, they're living creatures that are full of eyes. Inside, outside, all around the back. Why would you make worship leaders that are full of eyes? Because the key to worship, all you need to do to worship is to see who he is. And what we need more than anything else, you, you know why we don't worship fully? Because we don't see him fully. We only see him partially. Our eyes are blinded. Our minds are not fully grasping who he is. And so the key to worship is seeing who he is. Then everything about him is worth worshiping. There's so many characteristics. Do you ever wonder why the living creatures around the throne, they never tire of saying, you're holy, you're holy, you're holy, you're holy, you're holy, day and night? Why? Because they really see that he's holy. He's perfect and he's beautiful. And I want you to notice in verse 7, Therefore, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, what happened? What was the result of his passionate love for righteousness, his passionate hate of wickedness? Joy. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above all of your fellows. All your garments Verse 8, are fragrant with myrrh, cassia, 
Out of the ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. And at your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. <laughs> Who's this? Who's the queen in this whole parable? If this is a messianic psalm, who's the queen that he's standing and marrying? Well, raise your hand if that's you. Raise your hand if that's you. Okay, we need to have an altar call after, bro. Um, Jesus is this whole picture again of marriage, the most intimate, the most committed, the most intense relationship that he's gonna have with us. See, there's lots of pictures of what Jesus says our relationship with him are gonna be like um, when we are in eternity. And they all have to do with the intense closeness, bonding, love, overflow. I mean, it's amazing. I love the, the um, letter to the, the seven letters of churches to Philadelphia. He who overcomes will be like a pillar in the temple of my God. But then we find out later, there is no temple, but the lamb himself is the temple. What can this mean? Except that we're gonna be planted in the closest possible proximity to the Son of God forever and ever. I know. This is why I'm preaching this message. If, if that doesn't elicit a shout, like the, what, what else can be said? I mean, he is the treasure. Do you know that all of the rewards to the overcomers in the book of Revelation, none of them are a big bank account, none of them are a mansion, none of them are a country in heaven where you can have horses? All of them have to do with, you're going to have more of me. You're going to sit with me on my throne and you're going to rule over the nations. I'm going to tell you how to do it. It's like a little child on the seat of a tractor or a car and you, you have your hands over their hands. I'm going to have my hand over your hand, but your hand's going to hold the scepter. And when I say strike that or do that, you're going to do that and it's going to happen because I'm going to rule the universe through my people. We, we don't know what he has for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says to the Corinthians, like you guys can't even judge a little um, affair between yourselves. And this is what Paul said. To the carnal believers in Corinth, struggling, they're all about um, parties and identities. I'm a Paul. I'm of Apollos. No, I'm more spiritual. I'm of Christ. I'm of Cephas. He's like, dude. You guys are acting like this, but don't you know you're going to judge angels? Do, do we know the destiny that the Lord has for us? It's an amazing thing. Um, verse 9 again. King's daughters are among you. Your noble ladies at your right hand stands the queen in the gold from Ophir. Do, do you know what the gold of Ophir is? It's the purest gold. It's the most valuable. It's the rarest gold in their time. And here she is. She's decked out in gold. That is the most valuable gold. Her garments are covered with it. What does that speak of as far as our relationship with the Lord? The garment that he's covered us with is what? The garment of, of righteousness. His righteousness, which was purchased at the price of his own blood, which is the most valuable commodity in the universe. It has cleansed us and made us right before him. The queen is in rare, valuable, expensive gold, the righteousness bought by the blood of Jesus. And then verses, uh, verse 10, 
Verse 10 and 11, I, I wish you would look at them and take them as being the voice of the Holy Spirit to you because that's what they are. Verses 10 and 11, listen, O daughter, listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Listen, forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. What is beauty? What is the beauty of holiness in the people of God, in the bride of Christ, if you want to say that? What is that beauty? It is a reflection of his own character being formed and shaped in us to where our desires are toward that which is truly beautiful and truly valuable. And look, look what he says to do. Forget your people in your father's house. Everything that you knew as your identity, as your security, as your value, forget all of that. You have a totally new life now. You're attached to this beautiful king, and your life from this point on is your attachment to him. Verse 11, then the king, when will the king desire your beauty? You guys follow me? When is the king going to desire the beauty of his bride? When we forget our people, our father's house. It sounds to me kind of like what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. Does it ring a bell? Whatever things were gained to me, whatever things were gained to me, those I've counted as loss. Yet more than that, I count everything to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but what? Count them by dung. Count them by rubbish. This is beautiful to the Lord. This is at the heart of what holiness is, is our laying down everything that was precious and saying, you are the one that I want. You are the one that I desire. Verse 11 again, then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Let everything that defined your life before, everything that was your identity, let it go that you may be his alone. Bow down to him. Surrender yourself completely to his love. Holiness is a heart that is fully alive to the double beauty of Jesus. That's what it is. We think of holiness in terms of what we do. The Bible doesn't think of holiness in the terms of what we do. It thinks of holiness in the terms of what consumes our heart because that's what determines what we do. And then look at verse um, 3, 12, and 13. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. Look at this. The king's daughter, which is his bride, is all glorious within. Some translations say the king's daughter is all glorious in her chamber. The Hebrew actually leaves it open like that. She's all glorious within. She's filled with glory because her focus is right. She's single-hearted in her desire for her king alone. Her heart is vibrating with love and devotion. What attracts the king is not just a dutiful wife. Can, can I tell you something? Guys, can I tell you something? What, Jesus, what, what fires Jesus up is not a dutiful wife. 
What fires him up is a passionate wife that when they look at him, their eyes sparkle and twinkle. How many guys, how many of you like it when your wife looks at you like that? Okay, ladies, look around. How many like it when your wife looks at you like that? And there's a, there's a spark and a twinkle in her eye. There's a look of longing and love. It's powerful, and that's the way Jesus says. Um, what attracts the king, not just a dutiful wife, but a passionate bride whose eyes shine and sparkle when she looks at him, whose heart burns and says, you are what I want. You are my life, my inheritance, and I want nothing else. See, we don't have to go down a list of categories of sins. The issue in our life becomes when we see him for who he is. The issue in our life becomes anything that gets in the way of that love and that flow and that desire, I've got to get it out of my life. See, I've had people tell me, well, you can't tell me that's wrong. And I'm like, I'm not trying to tell you that's wrong. What I want to ask you is, is that affecting your spiritual life in a way that it's killing your love? Is it toxic to your love for Jesus? How is it affecting your relationship? This is what I tried to teach our kids all growing up. Well, Daddy, is that really wrong or right? I said the question is bigger than that. It's not a question even of right and wrong. The question is, how does it affect your heart with Jesus? I asked people that. I had a brother tell me, you can't tell me watching this movie and that movie is not right. I said, I don't care. But can you tell me how that affects your heart? Do you know John Wesley's mother, Susanna, he asked, he wrote her in a letter and he said, Mama, what, what is sin? Here's what she said to him. It was very wise. Sin to you is everything that diminishes your heart's desire and passion for Jesus. It's everything that gives your flesh a dominion over your spirit. It's everything that hinders you in your spiritual life. You don't have to categorize it and have to prove that something is sin. All you have to do is go, how does it affect my heart for my king? And if it doesn't affect it in a positive way, this is maturity I'm talking about here. This is maturity. The immature always want to parse it. They want you to have to prove that everything, this is right. You can't tell me that. It's really not the issue. The issue is, what are we living for? Who is our heart's desire? Who is our heart's passion? See, this is at the heart of what holiness is in us as God's people. It is his own character, his own values being imparted to us and shaping our own character. So then we go, we don't care. If, Lord, you want me to give up that sitcom? I count everything as dung in compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus, my Lord. Why is holiness beautiful? Why is it beautiful? Because the Lord desires our heart to be single focused on Him. If it makes Jesus desirous of me, I want to do it. If it makes Jesus want to draw me close, I want to do it. And if something hinders me from that, I want to let it down and lay it, let it go. Um, I carry a burden in my heart, especially for the younger generation. I carry a burden. Why do I carry a burden? I weep when I see people that abound and darkness that has gained a foothold in their heart. Pornography is a scourge, you know that. I don't point the finger at them and go, 
I get the addictive power of it. I get that it's a hook from the devil. But what it does, and the reason why it's so toxic, is that it causes our heart to die. Our bride heart, that heart that just wants Jesus, it puts a film over it and we can't operate anymore. We're just in survival mode. So we go from failure to guilt to trying again and to failure to guilt and trying again. And that cycle just keeps on repeating. And it makes me weep because I'm like, oh my goodness. The enemy has neutralized the power of the church which is in their heart being connected to the Lord Jesus. And we're distracted by going along this cycle and we can't seem to get out. Or we hide it. That's not the only sin. It's a scourge today in the church. The estimates of how many men, even ministers, are hooked on porn is phenomenally staggering. It's the enemy that does that because he doesn't want our hearts to be able to operate. And so what happens is it's like taking your gasoline and pouring water in it. He dilutes the power of our relationship with the Lord to be able not only to live and impact our own families, but to be able to impact our culture. Have you ever put water in your gas in your car? I, I had a gas truck one time, and I put diesel in it by accident. And I can tell you, it wasn't good. It started, and it ran. But it was like you burned, you were burning leaves in the cab. There was so much smoke in there. If you don't have the right fuel, if we dilute what we run on, which is our heart, the power of the Lord and the witness of our life is greatly diminished and diluted. This is why I weep. I have nothing in me that has a condescending pointing down finger going, I get it. I, ha I was addicted to porn when I was a teenager before the Lord rescued me. But I can tell you, thank God, after he rescued me when I was 15, I'm 58 now. I've never looked at porn. I've never been back. He delivered me from it. There's power in the cross of Jesus. The same voice from heaven that said, come to me and I will forgive you and wash away your sins by my blood. And receive you to myself is the same voice that says, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. At the resurrection, something huge happened. The power of all of the enemies of Jesus were crushed and broken, including sin, addiction, and all that. Why do I speak this way? I grieve for the body of Christ. I grieve for the Lord and His witness. I feel like in some ways... The underlying things inside of us as a culture, even as a people and as individuals, trust me, I, I do analyze my own heart. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, but I'm not pointing the finger, but I'm just saying as a community of believers, there's so much that's happening underneath the radar that keeps us from actually having full life and full relationship and full power with the Lord. People that live in, in besetting sin, their conscience is always defiled and they have a very hard time connecting with God. That makes me weep. When I look out in our congregation and I see that there's a large percentage of people out there that don't understand and grasp the love of the Father for them because they're constantly struggling in that cycle of failure, guilt, try again, failure, guilt, try again, that grieves me. There is a greater love. I can, tell you, I can tell you what the answer is. We have to hook up with the resurrection of Jesus. And we have to fight. But there's a greater love and there's a greater beauty that overcomes all of the other attractions in life. It's true. 
So I'm, I'm, I'm preaching out of that grief. I, I grieve for, for this generation in that way. I want to help. I ask the Lord, how, how can I help? How can I help? And I do. I, I counsel guys. I try to help them to, to get free from whatever the issue is. Um, so we can talk about the dark areas in our own life, which would maybe besetting sins. But, but can I tell you, can I call on some of you guys that are maybe more towards my age? Like a lot of us who've walked with Jesus for a lot of years, we typically don't struggle with besetting sins. But it doesn't mean that our heart is on fire with holiness. Because let me tell you something, the dead areas in our heart are just as unholy as the dark areas in the younger generation's heart. The dead areas in us, we become so familiar with the Lord and with the jargon and with the services and with the worship that we don't have wonder anymore. We can't fall on our knees and cry and go, God, how could you have thought of saving somebody like me? What? The wonder of the gospel and of the love of Jesus. There's dead places in our hearts where we've just smoothed that over. That's just as unholy because the heart of holiness, the heart of a bride, the heart that Jesus gets turned towards is the heart that says, I love you. Everything about you is beautiful. Everything about you is infinitely greater than everything that I've ever wanted in life. Everything about you is beautiful. And I want you. You are my inheritance. You are my life. And you are my passion. See, Guys like me, we know how to do lip service to that. But the reality is we've got to look in our hearts and find out. That's what I've been asking the Lord. Like, Lord, show me the dead areas in my heart that are, are not alive to you. Because what the heart of holiness is, and this is why it's beautiful. The heart of holiness is every part of me is on fire for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's finish the rest of the psalm, and then I want to bring it together. Verse 13, the king's daughter is all glorious within. Does that remind you of any verse in Ephesians chapter 5? How about, how about verse 27 that says, Jesus gave his life that he might present to himself the church in all her, what's the word? In all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy. You see, glory, listen, glory and holy go together. They go together. But that she would be blameless. Verse 14, she will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. Look at this in verse 15. Again, the whole issue of joy. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. One translation said they'll be bubbling with joy. Holiness is no dire struggle that's like drinking no fuss medicine. It's joyful. Jesus is anointed with joy above all of his companions because he loved righteousness, hated wickedness, joy. Verse 16, in the place of your fathers will be your sons. What? 
Notice what he's talking about here. When, when we live this way, there's going to be a heritage and a spiritual legacy that's passed on. In place of your fathers now, you're going to have sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. They're, this is the heritage of the righteous in Psalm 112. Your descendants will be mighty in the earth and they will have a place in this, the gates of the city. There's a heritage, a spiritual heritage that comes from those whose hearts are all his. Verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. What is that? That's a legacy. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. There's a heritage. There is um, beauty and power in a holy life. Holiness is truly beautiful because it's a reflection of who God is and we value the same things that he values. Let me just say, if the first thing that you think about when we speak of holiness is what you're doing, then you're destined to fail. If the first thing that you think about when we talk about holiness is what you do, you're destined to fail. The first thing we have to think about is what he did. That's where the power flows from. And I want to read you, I just have a um, sheet here. Sarah just talked about Jeremiah's book, and I, I want to read one of the things out of that um, as well. This, this is a dream that he had, and it went like this. There was two angels that came, and, then, and this was the end result of it. You can read it if you want to get the book, but listen carefully. God will not fill his house with glory until his house receives the cleansing and purification he desires to bring. Too many are chasing the glory, and they will never see it. For the lack of demonstration in the church is a direct result of the lack of consecration. Watch in 2019 and beyond as many cry out for the glory and never see it. Because they refuse to consecrate themselves unto the Holy One of Israel. However, also watch for the remnant who will consecrate and seek the face of God like never before. When and where the visitation of the cleansing is received, it is the sign to you that the glory will come. Um, I think when we talk about revival in charismatic circles, I just wonder if we don't have this idea that the glory is going to fall down like fire from heaven and fall on us and catch the congregation on fire. But I believe that the glory that we're looking for, some exterior outward thing that somebody brings, the glory, what if the glory that Jesus is looking for is actually inside of us? What if the glory that Jesus is looking for is actually that heart that says, Lord, I don't care what else happens. I just want you. I cannot live another day without you, without more of you. What if that glory filled every heart in the church instead of us coming, waiting for there to be some anointed servant to come up here and start a fire so we can all run up and get inside of it? What if Jesus' plan was, why don't every heart in the whole place be filled with glory, be filled with focus, be filled with single-hearted devotion to me, and that glory is what I'm looking for. And when that happens, I'll start a fire in the place that you can never put out. Oh, God, send us a single person who's super gifted so we can all run and hide in the flames. I don't think so. That's not the body of Christ. He does use people to start fires, but I'm saying, I think he's looking for other things. 
What if we're looking for the glory to come from the wrong place? We're looking for it outwardly. Jesus is looking for it inwardly. What if revival isn't so much fire falling from heaven as it is fire burning in the hearts of a lovesick bride who just can't live another day without more of him? What if the most devastating thing about sin in our lives, whether it's darkness or deadness, is not that it binds us in patterns of failure and guilt, but that it quenches the fire of love in our hearts. It's toxic to the bride's heart. What if revival fire is the fire of love and devotion that is all alive and glorious, burning within the white-hot desire for the doubly beautiful one? And what if the goal of revival isn't so much miracles and manifestations as it is burning hearts who just want to love and please and give themselves completely to their king in utter abandon? What if that's really what revival is? What if there was a group of people where our hearts were all burning? This is where we need to help each other. See, your fire can help me and my fire can help you. Your love can help me and my love can help you. What if we had a group where our, fi our hearts were truly fully alive, fully on fire, not going through the motions, but obsessed with the beauty of the king. What would happen in our culture? See, we, we, in my view, what we have in the church, it's, it's a fantasy in some ways. He's looking for the substance of the fire to be in us. He's not looking for another gifted somebody to come and drop the fire so we can all run up to it and get it. I believe that. I believe we have to move in that direction as a church body, as individuals, as a culture. The greatest thing that you can do, I'll close with this, Dave's coming. The greatest thing that you can do as an individual in your life, the greatest thing that I can do in my life is to search our heart and go, God, am I burning with a passion for the beauty of your holiness in my life? Is everything else secondary? Is everything else left behind that you might desire my, be my beauty and my heart for yourself?